For the last few weeks, we've been really celebrating the amazing creation design of God in Genesis 1 and 2. We've been preaching and rejoicing in the craftsmanship of God in the entire created universe, and then specifically God's created design for things like masculinity, femininity, sexuality, the home, the workplace. We've been seeing how God has designed the world with unbelievable creativity and power and seen the whole beauty of his craftsmanship in that work. Now we're transitioning, and you know whether you, are, whether you read books or are into films or are a creative person yourself, you know every good story has a shape to it, right? Every good story has an arc. It has a progression. So today, as we transition into Genesis 3, this is when our story goes from the pinnacle of creation, glory, and then just falls right off a cliff. This is creation, fall. Creation, fall. That's what we call Genesis 3. We call it the fall. And we're about to explore something else that's fundamental to our humanity, and that's called sin. Sin, by nature and by choice, is part of what it means to be human. You and I and all people sin. We are sinners. So just a little definition, what I'm talking about when I use the word sin. Sin, as the Bible defines it, is really any failure to conform to the moral law of God in word, in action, in attitude, and even in nature. The standard for sin, as the Bible defines it, is never in relation to others. It is always in relation to God and God's laws always in relation to God himself. So we see this idea in the Ten Commandments, when God not only prohibits actions like lying or stealing, he also prohibits attitudes like coveting. It's not only the action of taking things or of telling an untruth, it is the heart attitude of, I must have this thing that is wrong. And then Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he built on that when he prohibited even sinful attitudes, like anger or lust. And then when we start to look at that, we see very plainly and very obviously, in our actions, in our attitudes, we consistently fail to conform to the moral law of God. But if that were not bad enough, the Bible also says that we are sinners by nature. In our call to confess sin in this service, we'll often hear the words that we are sinners by nature and by choice. So what does that mean when we say that? It means that according to the scripture, the unbelieving person has a nature that does not conform to God's moral law. So Paul, when he writes in Ephesians 2, when he describes life before Christ, he says, you were by nature children of wrath. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The Bible speaks of sin as something that is intrinsically, fundamentally part of each one of us. We are born into sin. And we need to hear this because we often think, particularly 
in our time and place where the cultural powers that be are so opposed to traditional or historic morality, we often think that sin is out there, right? So we think that sin is something lurking in bad neighborhoods or dark alleys or in the hearts of the people that are mean or unenlightened or violent or addicted. Or we think sin is out there in the halls of power. Sin is in the decline of traditional or social values. It's in the sliding standards of public morality, and we can get hot and bothered about that sin. We see sin out there, and we get afraid for ourselves and for the generations that are coming behind us. But first, according to the Bible, sin is always in here. Sin is in here. And that is why we so badly need to see our sin and see its remedy. So what's the origin of sin? Where did it come from? How did we get in this situation? Even before the disobedience of Adam and Eve, sin did exist, or evil did exist, in the angelic world with Satan and his demons. But that is, another, that is a topic for another sermon. But with respect to humanity, sin enters the world in Genesis 3 in our text today. So today we're going to walk into something that would probably best be described as cosmic treason. It's the disobedience of Adam and Eve in their deliberate choice to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's where we, in that act, that is where we inherit our sinful nature. The Puritans used to say it like this, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. So I know that's a heavy intro, but let's pray, let's dig into this. Father, would you humble us now as we come underneath your word? I pray that we would see the truth of your story, but we would also see ourselves. And that we would see and believe and rejoice in the remedy that you have made for sin. Thank you for your grace. We ask that we would respond to you in faith. For the last... um, for the last several years, really, it's, it's been going on for a while. Some of you know I come from a large family. We've, we're, as, I'm the oldest of seven kids, so we're now spreading out all over the place. And uh, one of the things that my parents try and do once a summer, if they're able to, if we can coordinate, is uh, they, will, they have at times rented a big vacation house, and then the, pe- the siblings that are able to and the grandkids at this point will, will congregate at said house. Okay, You can imagine... Uh, by the time you rent a vacation house for that many adults, it's a, it's a pretty big place. You, if you've ever been in one of those sort of like big rental houses, the first thing you do is you like, you kind of run in and look at all the bedrooms and check out all the floors, see what the amenities are. You start being like, oh, they got a ping pong table, they got a pool table, we've got TVs. There's, and then um, eventually after the dust settles, most of these people, if they rent their vacation homes, they give you a really, really big binder, Okay. So the binder has, uh, it goes through the, all the specifics of the house. It often will have brochures or th- ideas for like local attractions. And then it will, at the end, often have like a lengthy list of house rules. Okay? And it's a, like, it's a little bit ridiculous, but this gets, at our heart, this gets at our heart nature. We were at a big place in, uh, near the Catskills last year. 
and it was, one of the, it was probably one of the nicest homes I've ever been in. But once you're there, you're on vacation, you're feeling like, we rented this place, we got the run of this joint, and after a little while, you get an attitude about their little house rules. You know, you don't know these people, they're not there. And you start to feel like, these guys think we should turn off the pool heater at night. I want warm water in the morning. What's with these guys? You know, they think, they think there's like a whole cellar that we're not supposed to go behind that door. What's up with that? The house is only 5,000 square feet. Why can't we go in that one room? That's our attitude, right? Well, let's think about that as we go into this creation narrative. In Genesis 2, I'm going to start here with a couple passages from Genesis 2 and then we'll transition into the fall. In, in Genesis 2, it says, the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden in the east, and there he put the man that he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord had made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then I'm skipping ahead to verses 15 through 17 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put it in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the cha- chapter 2 tells us that in the garden was every tree that was pleasant and good for food. This was a garden teeming with beautiful fruit-bearing trees. But we're going to talk specifically about two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil carried with it a very specific warning. You shall not eat of it. On the day that you eat of it, you will die. It's a test. In a sense, Adam and Eve are being put on trial. Their willingness to obey the command of God is being tested. So what happens? We'll keep going. Genesis 3. They get a test. But the serpent, who was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We all have a lot of questions about this story. I know that I've heard many of them from Friends, unbelieving and believing alike, why would God give them a test? What was the deal with the two trees? Where did the serpent come from? 
how are you telling me that these two trees have anything to do with me? What, what was the problem? So they ate of the fruit. What was the big deal? Couldn't God have given them a second chance? I would have given them a second chance. What does any of that have to do with me? I'm not going to answer every one of those questions. If you're a Genesis 1 through 3 junkie, we can take that offline. But let me start with the two trees, okay? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Sometimes we think there must have been something weird and foreboding about those trees. We think that the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil must have had like twisted branches or there was like a dark shadow over it or it must have had magical poisonous apples. It must have obviously represented disaster that would ensue if anyone had eaten of it or there's some crazy substance inside that fruit. But no, there was nothing magical or poisonous or mystical about the fruit. The text tells us that the trees in the garden were pleasant to the sight. They, they looked fine. They were good for food. When Eve looked at the tree, it was a delight to her eyes. She said, that tree looks great, like every other tree in this garden. We don't have any reason to think that this was a weird or different tree. And yet, God said, don't eat of the tree. There doesn't seem to be any particular reason to forbid that tree. God just does, and he doesn't tell them why. He just tells them consequences. He doesn't explain it. And that's fascinating, that God does not explain it. God could have said, when I say that you will die, what I mean is that when you choose to partake of this tree, that's actually choosing that you don't want to obey me. You'll be choosing that you think that you can handle the knowledge of good and evil. And when you do that, you will be taking on a level of moral experience that you are not wired up to handle. And that is going to destroy you. That's going to be detrimental to you. You don't want that for yourself and for anyone after you. So let me show you the effects of this, and then I'll convince you that it would be inadvisable to eat of that tree. God could have done that. He could have explained to them the consequences of their actions until they agreed with him that eating of the tree would be detrimental. That is not what happened. My family lives on a fairly busy street in Melrose, busy enough that when we park our car in the driveway, it's only six or eight or ten feet from the road. And my daughter Zoe just turned four. She understands that when we ask her not to go in the road, it's for her safety, right? We've had conversations about danger and about fast cars and about getting hurt, So while she's being obedient to our command to not go on the road, we're on the same page. We're both looking out for her interests, right? We're we're agreed in that. My son Ezekiel is not yet two. He loves to run, and he doesn't understand cause and effect. So when he gets out of the car, we just have a short conversation. We just say, no. That's That's the whole extent of the conversation. Now, Is that all that is involved in parenting? Of course not. But with this tree, God is unapologetically pulling out the classic dad line and saying, don't eat the tree. Why? Because I said so. That's what's happening here. God is saying, don't eat the tree because I said so. He wasn't asking for them to agree. He was asking them to obey. God was saying, I want you to obey because you love me and trust me and believe that I'm a good father. I'm God, and you are not. 
I want you to do something, not because it makes sense to you, but because you love me and you trust me. Just do it for that reason. And they failed. So because we don't like authority, many people look at this story and say, so why did there have to be a test? It was a perfect world. Why did God rig it up like that? Why did there have to be rules? And why did the consequences have to be so intense? God seems so capricious. I wouldn't punish anyone like that. Here's the answer. First of all, if you are seeing God in this story as some sort of cruel dictator, you aren't understanding the story. You are missing the fatherly care of God. God created image bearers of his who because they bear the image of God have volition or choice. They are put into a garden of yes with a tree of no. They have a whole paradise with one rule. God's yes drastically exceeds his no. We like to think or tell ourselves that God's law is extremely complicated and difficult to understand. No, it's actually simple. God's laws are for our good, and we just don't like authority. But let's look at what the tree represents. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents autonomy apart from God. It represents moral experience. There's actually, and I encounter this often, a very prevalent notion that experiential knowledge is always required to truly know something. Now, I understand in certain, in certain cases, this is actually true. So, like, if I want to go on a safari to Africa and see, all, like, see the lions and the giraffes and the tigers, I want to go with someone who's been there before, right? I want someone experienced. But experience in terms of good and evil is different. I've heard this idea often from people who are regretful about the restrictions that they grew up with in their youth. Or it could be other people that, who just feel like, uh, I, I have this personality, I toe the line. They think, they think that they need to know more of what they missed out on. When the truth is that experience gained by evil is not wisdom. It's slavery. So let me give you an example. When you need counsel about a relationship that you're in, do you talk to the person who's been married to one person for 40 years? Or do you talk to the person who's had 20 different sexual partners but has experience? Who do you talk to? But how often, how often do I hear Christians tell me with regret in their voices that they spend time wondering wistfully or nostalgically about what it is that they have missed out on? because of the way that they were brought up or because of the rules that they feel like are imposed on them. We foolishly think of evil as exotic or intriguing or fascinating. It's not. And the tree was not God's way of playing a fixed game with the people he'd created. It was a warning given to the ones he loved. It was a warning given to the ones he loved. If you choose independence from God instead of dependence on God, you are going to lose the pleasures of the garden and you are going to lose the God of the garden. There is a promise here wrapped up in this that points to the tree of life. God is telling Adam and Eve to trust him 
to enjoy the garden. But what is more, he's telling them to enjoy him as their greatest delight. They will have the garden to enjoy, but they will have fellowship with God and he will be their greatest delight. And of course, one tree has to be forbidden because that is the only way of securing that ultimate joy can only be found in God and not in any way that we deem fit. What was God saying when he fenced out one tree out of thousands? He's saying, I gave you an incredible world to enjoy. He cram-packed it with delight, with life, pleasure, happiness, taste, companionship, sight, smell, everything that was delightful to the eyes. Love, bliss. Only one tree was forbidden. And the point of forbidding that tree was to ensure that in all that, God would be their primary pleasure. If they can trust that, they can trust God. And if they can trust God, they can enjoy His creation. They can see Him as the, the real joy of life. But as soon as Adam and Eve say to God, I'm smarter than you. I know what's best. Your authority no longer applies. You aren't a good enough father. It all crumbles. It all crumbles to dust. And that's what happens in our story. It's cosmic tragedy. When the serpent comes, first he misrepresents what God has said. Did God really say you can't eat of any tree? See the misrepresentation? God is holding out on you. God is a skinflint. God isn't for you. God opposes your joy. Are you allowed to do anything? And then he moves from there and directly attacks God's words and tells them, you're not going to die. The consequences that the serpent says that the consequences that God promised are not actually real. It's an overt attack on who God is. So when the woman saw the tree, that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make her wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. It was a great looking tree. Everything about it was appealing. The serpent made a good argument. There was happiness out there that God had not yet offered them. They could handle it. They could manage that knowledge. And that's their sin. But I think you're feeling this is our sin. At the root of our sin, at the root of all our sin, is pride. We know what's best. We know what's best for us. We're wise in our own eyes. We know how much evil we can handle. So how many of us actually have this attitude with sin? We know it's sin. But we think, I'm going to get real close to the flame. Hold my hand over it. Let it get warm a little bit. Because I can handle it. I'm an adult. And I know where the line is. And I know when I can back away. So... A little bit of financial crookedness. Not enough to get caught because you know where the line is. Maybe a little bit of flirtation with someone at work because it's fun and it feels good and you, know, you would never actually let it get too far. Or maybe a little bit of clicking around on the internet because you're curious, not because you're actually looking for anything. And it couldn't hurt and you know, you know, where, the, you know where the bad stuff is. You're not looking for that. That is called pride. That is called pride, and you are not in control. You only think you are. 
you cannot manage the knowledge of good and evil. So what are the consequences of this sin? It's tragedy. God says, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and touch the tree of life and eat and live forever, the Lord God had to send him out of the garden. They lose the tree of life. Adam and Eve lose it. They lose perfect union and fellowship with God and the promise of eternal life. And in the fall, we inherit from our first parents what the Bible calls a sin nature. We are, by nature, children of wrath. Pridefully rebelling against God, failing to conform to His moral law in action and attitude and nature. We are separated from God and we are separated from the tree of life, cast out of the garden, adrift. And that should be the end of the story. That would be a bleak story. Creation, fall. But at the beginning I said, every story has an arc. And the biblical story has an arc too. Creation, fall, redemption. Redemption starts. There is redemption. And there is a third tree. The third tree is the cross of Christ. Adam was called to look at a beautiful tree and say, Everything in me says that tree looks amazing. And yet, because I love God and trust His promises, I am going to say no and obey God and say, God, I trust you. And then on the other end of human history, we see Jesus alone in the garden, contemplating the cross with that third tree held out in front of Him. And unlike the tree in the garden, everything about this tree looks horrifying. Everything about it looks undesirable. And in His humanity, Jesus says, I don't want any part of this. Father, let this cup pass from Me. And the Father says to Jesus, this is the tree. And Jesus, the second Adam, in His perfect obedience, says, not My will. Not My will. Yours be done. Jesus, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. First Peter, the, Peter, the friend of Jesus and an eyewitness at the cross, said it like this, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. He Himself. Jesus. Not metaphorically, not symbolically, not poetically. Jesus Himself bore That means bore to come underneath and to carry and get up under our sins. He carried them in His body. Again, not metaphysically, not in some sort of symbolic gesture. In His body, He actually picked up the tree and He carried it up the hill to lift, to stoop down, to come under. He bore them and He carried them in his body, on the tree. Peter was there. It's not like this thing had leaves on it. He knows it was the third tree. It was the only way back to life because he continues that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his stripes, you have been healed. Jesus is the only one who can take on the knowledge of good and evil. 
He bears it. The evil is something that needs to be carried. With His wounds, we are healed. And in His work, we regain access to the moral uprightness and the eternal life that the tree of life represents. The cross is the third tree. It's here that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life meet. There's no healing apart from the cross. Your sin, my sin, much worse than we know. Much worse. There's no course of self-improvement that is sufficient. You have no capacity to simply manage good and evil on your own. You are not going to be able to squeeze your way back into the garden. But this is how we falsely respond to our sin. We think, I can handle it. I can keep it under control, kind of like a pet. I can handle it. I love it, or I like it. I don't want to lose it. I can keep it under control. Or we hide it. Nobody can know. Nobody can know. So I'm here to tell you today, your sin is not handleable. It cannot remain hidden. The call today, when we hear the story of Adam and Eve, is to repent, to change your mind, to turn away from your belief that you can handle your sin, that you can contain it and keep it covered. So let me ask you today to repent, to agree with God about your sin. Agree with Him about your sin. Confess it to God and to one another. Bring it into the light and verbalize it with a brother or sister. And believe. Believe the good news that there is actually, really, concretely forgiveness and restoration in Jesus Christ. There is redemption. There is only one remedy, but that remedy is real. It is in the wounds of Christ. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Would you receive that and believe it today? Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the provision that You have made through Your Son. It is faithful and true, and I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would believe it and receive it and fully rejoice in it today. Um, Pray for those of us who are under the delusion that we can handle or hide our sin, that you would free us from that and bring us into the light of forgiveness and faith. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.